Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Rachel Wolf, and I will be your host today. I am a clinical pharmacy specialist in perioperative and surgical critical care at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Deborah Wagner, a clinical professor of pharmacy and clinical professor of anesthesiology at Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as Dr. Glenn Murphy, an anesthesiologist at Advocate Illinois Masonic Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. We are all faculty for an educational initiative titled Breaking Down Barriers to Achieve Safe and Effective Deep and Moderate Neuromuscular Blockade and reversal in the perioperative setting that is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.ashpadvantagemedia.com backslash NMB reversal. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started. So Dr. Murphy, what is the incidence and clinical implications of residual neuromuscular blockade? It's an interesting question. The first study to look at the incidence of residual block was performed over 40 years ago, and they found that 41% of people arrived in the PACU with evidence of residual block. Now, since that time, there have been over 100 studies that have been published that have looked at the incidence of residual block. It pretty consistently falls somewhere between 30 and 60% of our patients are getting to the PACU with residual block. It was thought with the development of better monitoring and shorter acting drugs that this incidence would go down over time, and it actually hasn't. In fact, the most recent study, the Recite study, showed that 65% of people were extubated with evidence of residual block. Now, whether you're in private practice or academics, it seems to occur everywhere. In fact, in the Recite study, all the patients were monitored with a peripheral nerve stimulator and all were reversed. So despite our most common practices, it still occurs fairly frequently. I think the more important question is what are the clinical implications of this? And over the last 20 years, there have been accumulating evidence showing that patients who have residual block have a number of adverse outcomes that can happen postoperatively. Most prominently are probably the airway events, such as hypoxemia, airway obstruction, and downstream postoperative pulmonary complications. Patients who have residual blocks spend much longer in the recovery room. There's a study from Mass General that showed that patients who had residual blocks spend 80 minutes longer in the recovery room compared to patients that didn't have residual block. There's also been data from our institution showing that patients with residual block have a number of unpleasant symptoms of muscle weakness. And this is something they remember that it took me a long time to wake up from anesthesia doctor. A lot of that is patients remembering residual block. And there's even some recent data showing that patients with residual block have a higher risk of being admitted to the ICU after surgery and having a higher 30-day readmission rate to the hospital. So patients with residual block, it's, it's a very common problem. And if patients have it, it can lead to these adverse outcomes. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, really our clinicians oftentimes don't realize our patients have residual neuromuscular block prior to the extubation, just due to some nuances in clinical practice. So Dr. Wagner, given that postoperative patients experience residual block more often than we really realize, what level of education do you feel that our PACU nurses get about residual neuromuscular blockade at your institution? Speaking for my institution, I know that um, it is very limited, but interested um, in your perspective. 
Sure, Rachel. Uh, happy to share with you what we've done. I do think it is a, a major deficiency across most PACU areas. Uh, I know at Michigan, we have spent a tremendous amount of time educating our PACU nurses relative to incidences and reasons for post-op nausea and vomiting, the importance of surgical antibiotic prophylaxis. But when we talk about reversal agents and residual neuromuscular blockade, that really hasn't really been a focus. At Michigan, we have looked at our handoff tool. Uh, we know that handoffs are a high-risk period for patient safety. And so we have a program called All Stay for the All Stop. This is really to go through a handoff that is actually managed by the PACU nurse caring for the patient, but requires the anesthesiologist and the surgeon stay at the bedside for this checkoff handoff to be done. Now, within that, embedded in that handoff is one lump category, which really talks about agents used for prophylaxis for PONV, what neuromuscular blocker may have been given in the OR, what reversal agent uh, would have been given. So those get captured. Uh, but I think really the knowledge base of why those are key components of the handoff really haven't been delineated very well amongst the nursing staff in the PACU itself. Um, so I do find that to be something that probably universally could use more work. Uh, I think we have one advantage at Michigan is we have a PACU resident or CRNA staffing the PACU daily, full-time, uh, as well as a respiratory therapist staffing, uh, which actually then, if there are respiratory complications, we have somebody immediately available to assess the patient. That would not be the case in the majority of institutions or hospitals across the United States. So um, again, just to reiterate, I think that there are deficiencies uh, around uh, nursing education of uh, residual neuromuscular blockade. Yeah, I think it's it, it, what the PACU nurses are the nurses who end up having to manage these problems. And really, it's so important that they have this knowledge. You know, in one of our early studies, we found that we looked at critical respiratory events in the PAC, and we found that 90% of the patients who were having these critical respiratory events had severe residual block. And in the vast majority of times, it was unrecognized. So by increasing our uh, PACU nurses' knowledge of this issue, I think we can really improve patient safety. Absolutely agree. Um, I know that on our standardized handoff, we do have the patient's paralytic status. But really, as Deb was mentioning, that doesn't necessarily really translate to why does that PACU-RN need to be uh, cognizant and listen to the information provided from the anesthesiologist about the paralytic status of the patient. So what do you feel, Dr. Murphy, uh, are key elements that the PACU-RN should make note of during a handoff from the anesthesiologist as it relates to intraoperative use of neuromuscular blocking agents and also the risk factors that place our patients at high risk of experiencing a critical respiratory event in the PACU? Yeah, I, mean, I think how we manage neuromuscular blockade in the, in the operating room clearly has an impact on the risk of, of these adverse post-operative events. And we really should be communicating more information. Now, I can tell you what I ideally would do, but again, like your institutions, we just typically tell whether the patient got reversed or not and what the muscle relaxant was. But I think, first of all, whether they got a muscle relaxant or not, 
that's very important. There have been a huge number of studies that are showing association between use of muscle relaxants and adverse outcomes postoperatively. Also, it's very important to dose that you gave. There is this data that's come out of uh, out of Mass General Hospital showing that the larger the dose you use of muscle relax in the operating room, the higher the risk of these adverse postoperative pulmonary complications are. Um, we and others have also found a really important factor in whether they have these uh, residual block postoperatively is when was the last dose of muscle relaxant given? We found that particularly within the last 45 minutes of a case of muscle relaxant was given, the risk of residual block is significantly uh, higher. Use of neuromuscular monitoring, whether they use a peripheral nerve stimulator, a quantitative monitor, or no monitoring at all, that can all impact the risk of residual block afterwards. I think one of the most important things, and we, what we don't transmit to our nurses, is what was the train of four count at the time of reversal, whether you're using neostigmine or sugamix, but it's much more important with neostigmine. That's telling you how deep the level of blockade was that you had to reverse. And particularly with neostigmine, it's harder to reverse deeper levels of blockade. For example, if you had two twitches to train of four stimulation, it's going to take on average about 30 minutes for that neostigmine to work, but it can be highly variable, it can be up to two hours. So that, I think, is a very important piece of information we oftentimes forget. Did you use a reversal agent? And if you did, was it neostigmine or sugaminex, the two that are most commonly used? Again, the risk of residual block is much higher if you don't reverse. Lower if you use neostigmine, it's still fairly high, and much lower if you use sugaminex. So again, that, that's very, very important information. And finally, what were your criteria for extubation? Before you pull that tube out, what did you assess in a patient? You know, typically, unfortunately, all the typical things you do, hold your head up for five seconds, squeeze my hand, none of that stuff it really works very well in detecting residual block. And then quantitative monitoring is the best, best, the best to have there. And that's a lot of information. We're in a busy PACU situation. You know, ideally, that's what we should say. But at least I think there's uh, several elements that I think that are very important of that information that we transmit to our PACU nurses. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's a lot of information, a lot of a lot for that nurse to digest. So, Dr. Wagner, what are your thoughts on that? I would uh, completely agree with Glenn. And I think, you know, another key factor really is what type of institution do you practice in? Uh, if you're at a large academic teaching uh, facility with large number of trainees and programs, oftentimes you may find at the very end of the case, they haven't timed the duration of the surgery necessarily with the timing of the anesthetic. And so I think it's really important to know that we're top off doses given of the neuromuscular blocker very close to the end of the surgical procedure. We find that a lot happens at our institution. And I think really looking at your institutional patient mix. So whether or not you're a facility that sees very sick critical care patients who are transferred from other facilities who have more uh, comorbidities and risk factors, I think is really important to assess when you're looking at uh, overall how these patients do in the PACU. I agree. And I know that whenever um, our patients experience a critical respiratory event in the PACU, we have often uh, blamed it on the opioids. So when a patient um, in the PACU actually experiences one of those events, how can we differentiate residual neuromuscular blockade from something like the over-sedation due to the administration of something like fentanyl? Is there a typical time course that one would expect for opioid-induced respiratory depression? So, you know, it's interesting, Rachel, I always stress with students, where is the effector site of the drug you're giving? 
And so we have to really be conscious about the fact that when we're giving uh, medications IV, such as opiates in particular, uh, they're centrally acting. Uh, they need to cross into the blood brain to have an effector site to actually cause respiratory depression. And that really varies with the lipophilicity of the drug. So for, for instance, if you were trying to assess was something due to one drug or another, and uh, perhaps the patient had been given fentanyl, uh, that effect on the depression of the respiratory drive uh, would happen very quickly. Now, that's very much different than what, if we look at a drug like morphine. Uh, morphine, for instance, can take up to over 160 plus minutes to have equilibrium in the central nervous system. So you would see a much more prolonged or delayed onset if that patient was to have respiratory depression. Sometimes in, in the PACU areas, we see what's called stacking of doses. If you're using morphine as your primary analgesic for pain, uh, by giving small incremental doses, but those incremental doses can compound over time. And we've seen even, you know, looking at long-term with morphine in particular, that oftentimes these critical respiratory events happen after the PACU discharge. So two hours or more patients end up on the patient unit decompensating. So I think really for the, uh, the nurses in the PACU, it's important to look at that time course relationship. And obviously if there is any suspicion of having some kind of post-operative pulmonary complication, having the ability to order x-rays to assess the patient to see, is it really truly a pulmonary issue versus an opiate-induced respiratory depression would be key to really distinguishing between the two. You know, th th those are all very good points. In our institution, was always thought that the primary cause and someone was getting into trouble in the PACU, it was opioids. And oftentimes it was blamed the patient. Well, sure, it's an opioid, but this is a 350 kilogram patient or this patient's 85 years old with COPD. We, we tend, to, those are typical things we thought, but when we looked at it, really residual block was very common. And those are the patients you would leave them with residual block tend to get in trouble. You know, for us, the easiest thing to do and when you're having a critical respiratory event in the PACU is rule out residual block. And there's, you know, two ways you can do it very quickly, either with quantitative monitoring or put in quantitative monitoring and see if they have residual block, a train of four ratio of less than 0.9, or giving a dose of Sugamidex. Either one of those is very are very quick ways to rule out. And once you've ruled that out that, then it's very easy to go into the pathway. It's this opioids, which is probably the next most common thing, is it related to patients' underlying pathophysiology. Um, but it's a quick way to, to, for us in our institution, rule out residual block first in these in these patients, and then you can look, look good on the path and look what else it might be. Yeah, so you're talking a lot about the neuromuscular monitoring. And of course, we want to actually prevent the patient from actually having a critical respiratory event in the PACU. So how could intraoperative use of neuromuscular monitoring, whether that's qualitative or quantitative, increase the safety of neuromuscular blocking agents and potentially even reduce these postoperative complications? Yeah, just as a quick definition, there are two types of monitoring we use to look at the effects of muscle relaxants. There's the there's the qualitative monitors, which are really just the peripheral nerve stimulators. And these are little devices we usually put, put on the ulnar nerve. Um, we give four short electrical stimuli, and then we look at the response at the thumb, how the thumb moves. We usually typically do a train of four count. We count how many responses we see. or We look for something called fade. Is the last twitch weaker than the, uh, the first twitch? And that usually indicates that there's some degree of, of muscle weakness. Uh, the problem with that is it, those, that type of monitoring can reduce 
but not eliminate the risk of residual block because you can still see what I was taught as a resident is that if you see fade, if you see an absence of fade, all four twitches are strong and they don't look weak, that, that you're okay and you can probably take the tube out. But the reality is you can see see four strong twitches without any fade and still have train of four ratios as low as 0.4. So that's what the importance of quantitative monitoring. Quantitative monitors are devices which stimulate the nerve, but actually measure the response and give you a number for between uh, zero and 100, 100 be, uh, or zero and one. Uh, and again, we want that threshold of at least 90% or 0.9 or better before we pull the tube, at, tube out in a patient. Data with quantitative monitoring is much better. They've shown that by using these monitors, you can dramatically reduce the risk of residual block. They've also shown by using this monitor, these types of monitoring, you can reduce the risk of complications that are associated with residual block. For example, by using this type of monitoring, you can reduce the risk of critical respiratory events in the PACU. And by using this type of monitoring, you can actually reduce these unpleasant symptoms of muscle weakness that patients experience after surgery. So not only can you reduce the risk of residual block, but the complications associated with, uh, with residual block. So it's a, a, an important tool in armamentary to have this type of monitor. I think you should always monitor, at least with a peripheral nerve stimulator, and ideally with a quantitative monitor. In fact, many, many countries around the world have practice guidelines stating that you should be using quantitative monitoring whenever you use a, a muscle relaxant. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, Dr. Wagner, so are there any medications, comorbidities, or patient-specific factors that can actually potentiate or prolong our neuromuscular blockade? Uh, Rachel, well, I think this could be a whole talk in and of itself, uh, but I'll try to summarize some of the highlights uh, for you uh, because there are quite a few, actually. I think just starting off, if we look at disease states, we really should consider any patient that has any type of musculoskeletal disease, uh, so MS or muscular dystrophy, these diseases all can actually produce a delayed onset uh, and prolonged recovery from neuromuscular blockers. We see this especially in children with these diseases, but as the adult population, many of them also have com comorbidities such as cardiomyopathies or arrhythmias that may make them really high risk for uh, receiving neostigmine as a reversal agent. Um, when we talk about drug interactions, uh, we have to remember that these non-polarizing agents bind directly to the nicotinic receptor, uh, and they are synergistic postsynaptically. So what we see then is we can see drug interactions occur with our antimicrobial agents, such as aminoglycosides, uh, the tetracyclines, clindamycin. These can all potentiate neuromuscular blockade. Uh, and although they might not be the primary agents used for surgical prophylaxis, uh, many patients may come to the OR already on these for a treatment of other infections. We have to also look at agents, some of the drugs like lithium, phenytoin. Also, these drugs decrease acetylcholine release and can potentiate uh, neuromuscular blockade. And probably, I think the most significant ones that we would see in the OR currently are drugs that are used for either enhanced recovery protocols or for uh, multimodal analgesia. So some of these would be magnesium and local anesthetics. Uh, as you know, local anesthetics depress nerve conduction, uh, and both of these agents can also potentiate uh, neuromuscular blockade. And then I think also we may forget that in a general anesthesia, 
uh, we use inhaled agents uh, such as isofluorine, sevoflurane, desflurane. These agents affect uh, the sensitivity of, of the motor end plate. Um, they can increase the potency of neuromuscular blockers. Um, they enhance uh, the antagonistic affinity. And, and in and of themselves, they actually provide some muscle relaxation in and of their own. So there's kind of a synergistic effect that occurs between inhaled anesthetics and neuromuscular blockers. This is concentration dependent, and maybe Glenn can weigh in too. I'm not sure whether or not we have data that looks at whether low flow of inhaled agents such, such as SIVO uh, have less of an effect, uh, but certainly we should keep in mind that the inhaled anesthetic agents uh, can prolong neuromuscular blockade as well. Yeah, there, I haven't seen any data on low flow anesthesia. However, there have, there have been several studies showing a significantly lower risk of residual block if you do a total intravenous technique versus an inhalational technique. And again, in the United States, it's much more common for us to do inhalational techniques. But if you go to Europe, for example, they're much more common using intravenous techniques. So, you know, one of the ways to reduce risk of residual block is by doing a total intravenous te uh, technique. Right. I think even there's uh, some data that would show that uh, under sevoflurane, uh, you are prolonged by about 20 minutes compared to eight minutes with propofol, again, yeah. leading towards uh, using a, a total intravenous technique instead of a GA with an inhaled agent. Absolutely. So that sounds like there's a lot of confounding factors within our ORs that can impact a neuromuscular blockade. And so just simply knowing the package insert pharmacokinetics may not actually uh, really be able to be extrapolated to all of our patients and certainly doesn't count for account for all of those confounding factors such as the drug-drug interactions nor the drug-disease interactions. So knowing that there could be all those confounding factors, Dr. Murphy, do you recommend uh, monitoring at all patients who get a muscle relaxant? And then should all those patients uh, who are given the muscle relaxant, should they be reversed? Yeah, I think, I think it's pr pretty, if you, there's pretty much of a consensus of opinion in that anyone who does research or not has knowledge in this area that we should always be using at least some form of monitoring and that you should always reverse patients. I think it's surprising if you look at surveys, only about 20 to 30% of anesthesiologists routinely reverse neuromuscular blockade. Um, and the, and the reason is when they ask why is because most believe that the that these uh, that the muscle relaxant will wear off within two hours, and there's the data is completely that's completely erroneous assumption. You know, we did a study where we gave somewhat uh, gave a group of patients half a dose of rocuronium, a, a, a 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, the half the dose we normally use. And three hours later, 21% of those patients still hadn't recovered. But you can give someone a dose of rock and see five, six, seven, eight hours later that they haven't recovered neuromuscular function if you're using quantitative monitoring. That's one of the things about quantitative monitoring. It, it, it illustrates you how basically um, uh, variable these uh, rock uranium recovery times can be. Given that, unless you have quantitative monitoring that tells you you recovered your train of four ratio of 0.9 or greater, you should always reverse your patients. And there's been a lot of data that's shown if you don't reverse patients, your patients can be harmed. Two recent studies were published. One came out of Vanderbilt, a large database study, looking at the association between failure to reverse and postoperative pneumonia. And they found that patients who were not reversed had a 2.3 times higher risk of having postoperative pneumonia. In addition, there have been a number of studies published over the last several years showing that if you don't reverse your patients, it can lead to patient harm. There was a large database study that came out of Vanderbilt that looked at 
basically uh, the association between failure to reverse and post-operative pneumonia. And they found that patients who were not reversed had a 2.3 times higher risk of developing post-operative pneumonia. Shortly after that study was published, there was a study that, came, uh, that was published looking at over 11,000 patients, and again, looking at this association between failure to reverse and post-operative respiratory complications, which they defined as failure to wean, reintubation, or pneumonia. A common complication to very serious complications. And again, they found a strong association between failure to reverse your patient and the development of these post-operative respiratory complications. So you know, given the data, it's clear that you should be reversing all your patients unless you have a quantitative monitor that shows you that you fully recovered. Absolutely. I think that that's extremely important. So Dr. Wagner, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I would just uh, reiterate what Glenn said, but also just uh, so that everyone's aware that regardless of the neuromuscular blocker that you use, so regardless of whatever class of agent you're using, that premise still holds true across the board. So yeah, so very important uh, monitoring. Our neuromuscular blockade is certainly important in our patients and, and absolutely important to ensure that they have, have been completely reversed prior to extubation. So, so Dr. Wagner, if all patients with a train of four ratio of less than 0.9 need to be reversed, what do we know about provider awareness of the costs associated with the reversal agents? And then associated with that, what about the incidence and costs of postoperative complications? Well, Rachel, that's very timely, actually. As a matter of fact, the Joint Commission Journal of Quality and Patient Safety uh, just published an article on awareness of medical providers, in particular anesthesiologists, in terms of their knowledge of medication supplies and blood products used in the OR. They had 12 categories of drugs that they looked at. Uh, including opiates, neuromuscular blockers, reversal agents, pressors, et cetera. And they really wanted to look at the median cost assessment if they were within 25% accuracy. And this was across CRNAs, residents, faculty. And interestingly enough, only 22% of providers correctly identified cost within that median of being within 25%. Over 50%, regardless of provider type, uh, had severe inaccuracy, and usually due to underestimation of high-cost items. So I think this has been seen before. There was another European study that actually had the same type of, of data. About 36% of providers could accurately identify cost of medications used in the OR. So uh, even though usually pharmacists are much more aware of costs and spend a lot of time talking about costs, it doesn't always trickle down to the end user, uh, the provider, as to one cost relative to another. And so, you know, when we look at that, then we look at the other side of the coin is what's that impact in terms of healthcare dollars, uh, not the actual cost of the medication. And there's quite a bit of supporting data. I think if you looked across the board, everything from both adverse respiratory events that came out of the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program. Uh, as well as other cost data for respiratory complications, as well as actually looking at reintubations that really were in an ICU setting, but most of them were due to post-operative reintubations. I think you can on a ballpark kind of say that the average cost ends up being somewhere in the range of $60,000 or more 
we know that uh, if you have to be in an ICU and have a one day of mechanical ventilation, Joe Dasta did some work looking in the ICU, you're talking about that cost being almost $11,000. So a significant cost relative to healthcare dollars due to respiratory complications. Um, and a lot of data, I think we, we really don't know because I think a lot of times we don't do a good job of really tracking reintubations due to post-op complications. So large amount of cost incurred and a real lack of knowledge, I think, on the provider behalf of what the actual cost of high cost medications are. I agree. I think at our institution, you know, while um, even sometimes there, there are some difficulty even within the pharmacy to, to be transparent about cost and cost change so quickly, um, it is hard to keep all of our providers aware of what the cost is of the medications themselves. And then also to be, I guess, in line with uh, why, you know, the big picture about the healthcare costs and how, um, and to try to balance the pharmacy budget versus the, the big picture, like I said, as far as the entire hospital costs in general related to complications or potential of complications and readmissions. So all great things today. So I think what we uh, have learned is it's very important to monitor our neuromuscular blocking agents. Uh, we need to avoid residual neuromuscular blockade, avoid uh, putting our patients at risk for postoperative complications and increasing our awareness about the cost of, of medications. So with that, I think that's all the time that we have today. I thank you so much, Dr. Wagner and Dr. Murphy for joining us today. And thank you for tuning in to this session of Pharmacy Hot Topics. Don't forget to check out the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash NMB reversal backslash for more information on neuromuscular blockade and reversal. And we hope you enjoyed today's uh, conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.